Thank you. Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to be in God's Word as we continue our series through this book written by Luke that communicates all that God continued to do and teach through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit moving through God's church. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, we're going to be uh, split it up. We're going to do verses 1 through 8, and then 26 through 40 this morning, and then we'll hit 9 through 25 in our next time in Acts together. Read along in your Bible, so it'll also be on the screen as I read out loud. Hear God's word. And Saul approved of his execution. That's Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And flip over or move down your page to verse 26. We'll pick up there and read through the rest of the chapter. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise. And go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you were reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And verse 34, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you does the prophet say this? This about himself or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. Praise be to the Lord. Well, chapter 8, as, we, as I said last week, that the persecution and the martyrdom of Stephen was the tra- a great transition, a hinge text within the book of Acts in which the the center of the focus of this book in the mission of God's people, at least as Luke is describing it, uh, is moving from being centered in Jerusalem 
and is shifting to the other parts of the Great Commission, which is Samaria and Judea. And as we'll see in a couple chapters, it shifts again to being um, a, a mission to the, all the nations of the world. So this morning, we now come to that, that shift. And chapter 8 is pretty much entirely about this focus on um, reaching uh, the Samaritans with the gospel, and, and not just Samaritans. And in order to understand this in these accounts, there's three accounts here in chapter 8. The uh, first one is very brief, almost kind of an umbrella, how Philip uh, and the church goes out as they're scattered, and they preach the gospel in Samaria. And then we find this, uh, I- this issue with Simon, as we'll look at uh, the next time we look at Acts. And then we come to this um, story today of the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch. And what we find both in the idea of the Samaritans and what Philip does as he goes to reach the people of Samaria, and in the case of this eunuch, is that verse chapter 8 is about reaching the outsiders. You see, the gospels now move from the central part of Israel and Jerusalem, the place of, re- of great religiosity, the people who are supposed to be God's people, and it's now moving to a people who are well-known, but especially by the Jews, as being unclean, as being outsider. And what we find, in fact, it says it multiple times throughout the chapter of, uh, 8 of Acts, is that when the gospel goes out to the outsiders, to Samaritans and to eunuchs, to people demon-possessed and the people who are broken and lame, that to those people, these outsiders, when the gospel comes, it brings great rejoicing and great joy. What I want to focus this morning is the fact that both, the, the focus here is the uncleanliness of the eunuch and the uncleanliness of the Samaritans. In fact, there are numerous quotes about from various Jewish authors and rabbis of that time of, of, of their hatred for the Samaritans. And I'm going to focus on that more next time as to the hatred of Jews to Samaritans. But essentially, Samaritans were hated because they were half-breeds. They were people who were left over from when uh, Israel, many of Israelites were taken away from Israel and uh, uh, transplanted there would be various Babylonians and other people groups that intermingled with the people left over in Israel. And they began, they had a great rivalry with uh, the, the, the people who were considered to be fully pure Jewish people. And there, oh, this rivalry built up over a thousand years. Like you think that Israelites and Palestinians have a problem now. That's been going on since what, 1948? This has been some animosity building for about a thousand years that is happening between the Samaritans and the Israelites. And we'll focus on that next time. But we also find the Samaritans, while they're considered utterly unclean, and they are not welcome in the temple, we find this is the view of eunuchs as well. And so chapter 8, as we're going to look at, and the theme we're going to see in both of these looks at chapter 8 is this, is how the gospel advances and gives joy to outsiders. It gives joy to outsiders, to Samaritans, to the demon-possessed, and to eunuchs. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. How does the gospel give joy to outsiders? Got two points, two uh, overarching points for you this morning that we're going to look at with a lot to say within each of them. The first is this. How does the gospel give joy to outsiders? The first is this, is through the ministry of God's scattered servants. The ministry of the scattered servants. Listen, if I were to thematically in a kind of a pithy way summarize chapter 8 of Acts, I would say this, that the advance of the gospel was done by every member in every way for everyone everywhere. It was done by every member in every way for everyone everywhere. 
See, it was done in every way. What we see is Philip goes out and he preaches in word and in deed. He goes out proclaiming the gospel. We also see that he does these signs. He's doing healing. He's not simply caring for people's spiritual needs, but also for their physical needs. So it's done in every way. Second, it's done by everyone or for everyone. He goes out to Samaritans and to eunuchs and to the demon-possessed. It is not simply centralized in Israel or in Jerusalem. It is for all peoples. It is done everywhere. It goes to Samaria. We see that Philip goes along the coast after this account. He's going up and down the various cities there, preaching the gospel. And we even see the disciples, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, in verse 25, it says that after they've come to check out this proclamation, this profession of faith by the Samaritans, that the apostles go through Samaria, preaching to all the various towns. And even we find here today that God calls Philip to go out to the desert, to a place called Gaza. Now, you've heard of Gaza. It's in the news a good bit. Well, Gaza has never been a very happy place to be, especially in the minds of Israelites. It was a place that was originally, at least if you've read your Old Testament, was the home of Philistines. It was considered a place of uncleanliness. It was not the place you wanted to go as an Israelite. It was on the way to Egypt. And so yet God calls Philip to go to the hard places, to the desert, to Gaza, the places that are unclean. You see, God has called some people to go to the, the slums of India. Christians are called to go everywhere. But this morning, I'm not going to look at all four of those. I simply want to look at the first one, which is this, every member. That what we want to focus on is the fact that the gospel was advanced by every member in God's church. Look at verse 1 and verse 4 with me. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Here's the context. Remember, they killed Stephen. And this is a watershed moment. In the previous chapters, who has been persecuted? It has always been the church leaders. It has been the apostles. But Stephen is not a preacher. He's not someone who's necessarily getting up and preaching in front of a bunch of people until he's forced to, as we see in the account in chapter 7. He was not a clergy. And that meant it's not just the apostles now who are, getting the, who are on the focus of those who are trying to persecute Christians, but they're after the whole church. And it's a wide array of persecution, in which this persecution by Sadducees and by Pharisees, they, these people who are normally enemies, they join together in their hatred of Christians. And they go after them. And what was we see in the text, in many ways, led by Saul. And this is a ferocious and barbaric persecution in which not only do they imprison men, but yet women and children, and they put some of them to death. But they, what they are doing is they're attempting to stamp out the church. This is not simply if you preach in public and you proselytize, we're going to arrest you. This is, we are going to your home to get you out. This is the type of persecution that it is. The apostles, and what did they do? They went underground, probably, and they stayed in Jerusalem. But the lay people, what did they do? They got out of town. They ran for their lives. They got out of Jerusalem. But what did they do as they ran, as they were scattered? They preached the word. They preached the word. And there is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures that when God, by his providence, when he says, get out, that what God's people are to do is that as they go, there are to be a blessing to the people around them. Genesis 12, right all the way back to where God calls Abraham out. He says, I am calling you to just simply go to the promised land and live for you and your family. No, in order to be a blessing to all the nations. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Even the way you're supposed to raise your kids. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 says this, and talking about the law, it says, You shall teach them diligently. You shall teach the law diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, you're supposed to talk about God. You're supposed to talk about his word. You're supposed to share the gospel at all moments of the days and in all settings. And this is the same with the Great Commission as well. It says, go therefore. And the Greek there would literally mean as you are going. So wherever you go, Wherever God has put you, wherever God has placed you, whether it's under persecution or simply going to the work to work today, and you leave on Monday morning, you are being sent out to proclaim the gospel. Now you might say to yourself, now listen, it says here that they preached, and that's supposed to be my job, right? And you're saying, I'm not a public orator, but that's not actually the Greek word that is going on here. It is a word for proclamation. There is proclamation going on here. But it's not the same word that is used for the proclamation done by apostles. It's a different word. In fact, in Acts, this is only one other time have we seen the word eoangelion, which undergirds the word we get for evangelism or sharing the gospel. But in Acts 8, suddenly we see the gospel in this word eoangelion used five different times. That is the focus of chapter 8. And this is the focus of all Christians. That yes, you may not ever publicly get up and speak. You may not stand up as an orator. But it is your calling as God's people whether under persecution, or in, but in all places, as you go out, as you walk by the roadside, as you're with your family, as you're with your friends, as you are to evangelize, to communicate the goodness of the gospel, to be heralds of Jesus Christ. That is your calling. Listen, we got a, t- we got a ton of college students and young 20-somethings in our church. I've been asked, I think, at least twice to speak at various CO events on what is the issue of what is God's will for my life. You know what God's will for your life is? Obey and share the gospel. That's God's will for your life. Everything else, you know what you do? You just do what you want. It's really that simple. With all wisdom, you obey and you share the gospel. And this is what we're called to do, and this is what we see that Christians do, even in the midst of persecution. God sends them out to scatter them to be a witness. Preaching moved from the job of the apostles to the job of all people. You understand this? Every person became a medium for sharing about the truth of Jesus Christ. Every member of the church takes responsibility for the mission. Everyone is a herald. So the truth of it is, is when God calls you in to God's family, he then sends you out to reach those who are not in God's family. God used the persecution to send his body, his people out so that everyone could be a person on mission. You know what? Churches often thrive in seasons of difficulty, often when they lose the professionals. Churches often go through a time of revival and renewal, often when they lose their pastors. You know why? Because they get into this this mindset that they look to the leaders and they go, that's your job. That's his job. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Every member is to be a minister When the church unites and they begin asking questions without a leader and a pastor and the professionals, they say, why are we start asking questions like, why are we here? What is our purpose? And if we want to get this done, well, there ain't no one we're paying getting it done, so we got to do it ourselves. And the church begins to actually thrive because the church begins to function the way the church is supposed to function. You know, this is the case in in church history as well. We saw this in the 20th century in China. There was a great movement of, China, of missionaries, of Western missionaries who went to China in the early part of the, late part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. You may have heard of Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission. Well, there was this great move to send missionaries to China. 
And they were seeing some fruits, but they were, they were laboring hard. But around the time of World War II, when the communists kicked out the national government in China and began to take over, what happened to the Christian missionaries? They were either killed or they were sent out. They were expelled from the country. And people looked at this and they were like, you know what? That's the death of the church in China. How is the, chi- how is, how is the church in China going to grow? Well, boy, were they wrong. Because over the next 50 years, that persecution, what it did is it made, it forced the lay people, the lay ministers of China, the people who actually knew their context, who knew they were willing to risk, who loved their people, they began to take hold of the ministry. And over the next 50 years, China has experienced more fruit than perhaps any country in the world. Why? Because the professionals got kicked out and the indigenous peoples begin to take up the call of the ministry that God has called them to do. In fact, in 2008, during the big, huge earthquake that was in Sichuan province where 68,000 people died, one million Chinese people went to help with, uh, to take care of the destruction there and to, to care for people. And it is estimated from the various studies that were done that over half of that one million people were Christians. Half. See, the church in China is thriving and when we all thought it was going to die because God's people took hold of the mission. Are you willing to take hold of the mission? To be heralds and evangelists. Do you see this as your mission? So often people say, I mean, I want my friend to get inverted, converted and I, I know what I'll do. I'll see if the pastor can meet with them or I'll see if the, the deacons or the apostles can meet with them. But now, now, now here's what, the church, what happens with the church. They don't have the apostles there anymore. And so they go, I got to do it. So I'll do it. See, lay people do a way better job of evangelism than clergy usually. You know why? Well, one, because clergy, we want to do stuff like parse Greek verbs. And that's boring. No, you're not going to save anybody doing that. But no, they're, they're, you're do a better job because think of it this way. There's only one of me and there's 250 of you. There's one of me and there's 250 of you. There's only one Ben Weber and there's 250 of you. There's only one Hamilton Phillips, but there's 250 of you. There was 12 apostles, but there's thousands of believers in Jerusalem. This is in large part, brothers and sisters, why we must be a church-planting church. Churches thrive when they send people out. You know why? You know what happens? Because you send people out to go do evangelism. More people get saved by churches in their, in their uh, first one to three years in existence than the rest of their, their lifespan as a church. You know why? Because they go out with a mission to reach an area. And guess what? It's good for sending churches. You know why? Because you send out your leaders and other people have to step up and stand in the gap and you raise more leaders. It is good when God's people get sent out. It's good. It's better for you to do the job of evangelism than me because you are integrated into society. You know, God has missionaries. He has paid missionaries. And they're paid by the various very places that is supposed to be their mission field. You see, some of you are missionaries and you're paid by Tanner. And some of you are missionaries and you're paid by Greenway and by Southwire and by Georgia Power and by Carrollton City Schools. And that indeed, in fact, your very mission field is paying you to come and do mission there. I don't get invited. Well, listen, actually, I did get invited at one point to pray at West Georgia. And that was a debacle, wasn't it? So it's better when somebody else... When somebody else preaches the gospel in those places, has relationships with those folks. So where are you? Where has God put you? Some of you say, listen, man, I just moved out to the farm burbs. You know what the farm burbs are? For you have four, four acres and some goats. 
for most people in our church to live. Listen, if you're going to live in the farm burbs and you're not going to see your neighbors, you've got to figure out where you're, going to, where you're going to minister. So homeschool moms, you have a great calling. And I say this, I'm actually in all seriousness saying this. For those moms that are a part of classical conversations, you dads that are a part of Lighthouse, that are part of these homeschool organizations, those places desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are my people. These are the people I grew up with. These are people who are crushed by religiosity, and they need people who would come in and in word and deed say, I am, I'm going to die for my children, and I'm going to protect them, but my goodness, I'm going to preach the gospel, and I'm going to live out of grace, and I'm going to give this to you because we got moms, we got dads who are being crushed from the weight of what they think they have to save their kids, and they have to save their families. College students, God has called you to be at West Georgia. To save the people you are roomed with. Church is not a place where there's a few providers and a bunch of consumers. We are all the managers. We are all the sales staff. Spreading the truth about Jesus is everyone's job. And so let me ask you this. Are you, is that how you see it? A very, very brief, very clear challenge for you. Would you pray this month for opportunities? At the beginning of the year, we had each of you name one person, one person who you would share the gospel with this year. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? Would you be willing this month to call those people to get time with them? This, I, this, I heard this quote by a pastor named Ray Cortez this week, and I thought it was brilliant. He said this, non-Christians are far more willing to talk about, to us about Jesus than Christians are willing to talk about Jesus to non-Christians. Non-Christians are far more willing to talk to us about Jesus than Christians are willing to talk about Jesus to non-Christians. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. People are dying to hear from us, to understand what we believe, and to hear the good news. Make yourself available. And let me just tell you this. There's, just give you a warning. You should start praying for opportunities, and you should go after the one person. But understand this. Often, often those opportunities will come in suffering. What sends the church out to begin evangelizing? Sorrow, persecution, being scattered. You know, it's very often the places in which we're most hurting that we have the most opportunity to share the gospel. You became a widow, and you, support, you, you join a support group with other widows. God has given you an inroad to share the gospel. You're on dialysis, and you're ticked at God about it, because every week, you've got to go waste time, and you've got to go sit in that room, but my goodness, there's a bunch of other people in that room with you, undergoing dialysis, a well-made, a ready-made mission field. You've got an addiction. Perhaps sexual abuse is in your past and you join a support group to be healed yourself, to proclaim the gospel also to those who are on their way to being healed. One member of our church, I can think of, so many of you do this, but one member of our church experienced incredible loss and tragedy in her life. It's amazing. And out of that, out of the necessity, she's had to use her home as a means of income. And because of that, Tens upon tens, many young women in our, in our community have been ministered to in word and deed. Why? Because out of sorrow, God brought forth gospel proclamation. So how do the outsiders, how do the unclean, how do the dirty and the broken come to know Jesus, come to be brought in to become insiders, become members of the kingdom of God? It's when the insiders go to the outsiders. It's when the insiders get scattered and go to everyone in every way everywhere. So the gospel advances to give joy 
in that way, but it also, the power of it, though, the, mes- the message by which we go out, both in word and deed, but the message that we symbolize in our deeds and that we proclaim with our mouths is this message, and that is also the ministry of the suffering servants. The ministry of the suffering servant. You see, the gospel advances to the outsiders when there is a servant who comes and sits at the feet of the outsiders, when there is one who takes on their suffering. I want to introduce you to the eunuch this morning. One really point, one long point about him. We are introduced to this Ethiopian eunuch, and some of you may be familiar with this story from your Sunday school days, or maybe you've never heard this story before. But Ethiopia, this man was a, essentially the CFO, or the, the, the chief, chief treasury officer of Ethiopia. And at that time, Ethiopia was a vast and great country. And he was, he was, a, he was a ruler and a government official under this person called Candace. Now, Candace is kind of like a term like Pharaoh or Caesar. That wasn't the name, a proper name. It was kind of, it was a title, a government title. And he works for this, this queen, this Candace woman. And he is, he is identified, though, not, not primarily as an Ethiopian or primarily as a rich government official, but he's primarily identified as what? A eunuch. A eunuch. And said, in fact, five times he's called a eunuch in these short verses. That's a weird thing. This would have been common for those who worked in government officials, especially for those who were commoners that worked their way up and began working in the royal household because they wanted, they castrated you in order to, so that you're focusing simply on government tasks. And also they didn't want you mingling with royal blood, if you know what I mean. They didn't want you weighing down the royal line. So they were castrated very often and groomed for high office because the kings thought they could trust them better. And they would do better work. But you know what that meant for them? It meant they lived very lonely lives. They lived the lives of workaholics. They they usually, you can imagine, were probably unmarried. And they didn't have any children. But five times, this is how Luke refers to this man as a eunuch. Why do you think he refers to him as that? That's kind of, I mean, of all the things to latch on to. And how did Luke know? Or how did Philip know? Who told Luke? Probably because the eunuch told him. Now, he probably would have assumed it since he was a government official, but most likely because the man told him. In the course of his conversation with Philip, the significant issue that probably was on this man's mind was the fact that he was infertile. He was a sexually mutilated man, and most likely his life had very little relational intimacy. And the last last thing we can see about this man is he was coming from where? From worshiping in Jerusalem. Which means that this man was what the Bible most often refers to as a God-fearer. Now, the, the Bible has different ways of, re- of referring to different tiers of, of who, who you are in regards to how the Jews viewed you. The first, category one, the highest level was obviously being a Jew. The second category were what you called proselytes, which were Gentiles who became circumcised and thus became national Jews. Then the third category were these group of people called God-fearers. But they were those who worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They worshipped Yahweh, but they had not become nationalistic Israelites. In other words, they had not taken on the sign of circumcision. And that is who most commentators believe this man is. He is one who worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And somewhere along the way, he is in his readings and teachings, and usually probably from hearing from another government official that he would have heard about this God, and he now travels to Jerusalem to worship this God that he's heard about, this God Yahweh. Now understand that this traveling is not something like, you know, a little two-day trip. If you're going from Ethiopia to Jerusalem in that day and time, it probably took you about five months. 
Five months. And so he goes, five months, this man of great brokenness who's now heard about this God that he longs to know, that he longs to have accept him, to be in connection to, and yet what is what happens? As a unit, he's going to find relational intimacy with God. He has power and wealth, but he has no family. He goes in order to engage with God, and you know what probably happens in Jerusalem? He goes to the temple, and they don't let him in. You see, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, it says this. I'm sorry for the graphic language of Deuteronomy 23. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. In other words, the law of the Lord says that anyone who has gone under the same kind of physical and sexual alteration that a eunuch had undergone could not enter the house of God. And that means he would have, he would have traveled hundreds of miles. Hundreds of miles to know this God and been turned away. This African man, forget it. So if you can imagine five months of painful travel only to be turned away when you get to the door. And so this eunuch is returning home possibly after significant devastation and disappointment. But while in Jerusalem, it appears that he purchased and it shows that he's a man of great wealth. It wasn't like today where you just have the opportunity to buy the books. Most people, there was only one copy in a city that was in the synagogue and they would get up and they would read it. So he per- but he's able to purchase at least some part of the Hebrew Bible, and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah, and it's reading in Isaiah 52 and 53, and it's at that moment that Philip runs up in the desert and begins to engage with him. And I want to read just a little bit of Isaiah 52 and 53. Follow along in your own Bible. There's going to be some of the passages on the screen, and I want to see if you can make the connection of why this passage would be so significant to a eunuch, to a man who was considered unclean, who was rejected and not allowed to go into the temple. Pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at at you, his appearance was marred, being beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. So the gospel won't just be for Israelites, it's going to be for all peoples. He was, verse 3 of chapter 53 now, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from, one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 8 now. This is the very exact quote from chapter 8, or chapter 8 of Acts, verse 8 of of Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, that is for his children it's referring to, as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was of the will of God to crush him. He he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. 
He's reading Isaiah 52 and 53, where it speaks to give you a, just to kind of, if you didn't follow that well, it speaks of a human sufferer who is led like a sheep to be slaughtered, like a lamb who is silent before those who are doing injustice. And this sufferer experiences unbelievable humiliation, nakedness, deprivation of justice, and he is killed. And the Ethiopian asks Philip, he asks him, is this, is this the prophet talking about himself or about somebody else? Is this the figure, this figure, the suffering servant? Who is this? And Philip says, oh, I'll tell you who it is. And what does it say he does? He goes on to tell him about the good news of Jesus Christ because Jesus himself pointed to Isaiah 53 and said, that is me. From the very beginning of scripture, it says that Philip told him the good news about Jesus. He shared the gospel. He evangelized the eunuch. And here's probably what he would have said. Let's guess. Knowing that this man is a eunuch and reading Isaiah 53, he probably would have said this. He says this, Jesus on the cross says, I have become the leper for lepers. I have become unclean for the unclean. I have become a eunuch for the eunuchs. I have become a thief for thieves. I have become a coward for cowards. I have become a bad husband for bad husband. I have become the bad wife for bad wives. Don't you see, he says to my African friends. The Mosaic law was just pointing to a spiritual truth. The law that says you can't enter into the temple was pointing to a physical sign of what is spiritually wrong with all of us, which is this, that we should not be allowed in God's house because we are unclean. That we are spiritually unclean. We are all excluded from God's presence because of our sins. Nobody loves God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nobody loves their neighbor as they ought to. Nobody can go in. We all deserve to be excluded, to be lost, to be called unclean, to be rejected, and to be outsiders. And yet, and yet, because of what Jesus did on the cross, outsiders become insiders. Because Jesus, the ultimate insider, became an outsider. Because on the cross, Jesus was excluded. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the forsakenness of God who rejected and despised him. Why? So that we who are unclean might be called clean. So that we who have been rejected may now be accepted. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel from the Old Testament. And the good news and the promises, the good news hits just keep coming. Because if you think, it, whether it was he read it with Philip or after Philip leaves, what do you think the eunuch does? He probably keeps reading, right? And the beautiful part of Isaiah is Isaiah in chapter 54 and 55 and 56. It goes on to talk about the blessings that are ours because of the suffering servant. And he would have come to chapter 56, verse 3 through 5, that says this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Now the innuendo is clear, right? And the gospel is clear. That the promise for this man, because of the suffering servant, that you may never have children. You may never have a spouse in this life. You may never be accepted in this world. But in Jesus Christ, through the suffering servant, the promise is this, is that you will have generations of people after you. Generations of sons and daughters in Christ Jesus. Generations of brothers and sisters. You will have a father in heaven. Can you imagine how it felt to read that if you were the eunuch? That all your life, your identity is to be ostracized? 
The whole plan of your life is to separate you from other people, to keep you from intimacy. And now there's been one who has been rejected so that you can have intimacy with God. No wonder it says the Ethiopian goes away rejoicing. No wonder he rejoiced. This is the good news that he so desperately needed. And he wanted to be baptized and to say, that is my Lord and that is my Savior. The two applications as we close. For those of you that consider yourself outsiders, I think you have to develop this too much this morning, so much in this text to try to explain. But do you feel like an outsider? You come to church and you're like, I don't look like these people. I don't talk like these people. I don't live like these people. Perhaps there's some stain in your past. You may have been in the church for years, but there is a secret sin or a secret shame, a secret thing done to you that makes you feel unclean every time you come to church. I want you to see that there was one who was rejected, a suffering servant who was cast outside the city, and he is the one, this is a beautiful, he is the one who pursues outsiders even now. You see the whole point of this text? Do you see God's dogged pursuit of outsiders, of Samaritans, and the demon-possessed, and the addicted, and the broken? What is the focus of this passage? Is the focus of this passage Philip? Is he the hero of the story? Is the, is the hero of the story the eunuch? No. God is providentially working in all events here in Acts chapter 8. Why? To save the outsider. What happens at the very beginning? He causes persecution to come down upon God's people so that he might send them out to save the sheep that is outside. In fact, he blows up the 99. All right, 99, you're going to go find that one lost sheep now. Get out. He sends Philip. What does he say? He said, Philip, I just want you to go 40 miles. Walk around in the desert. Where am I going? I'm not going to tell you. Gaza, somewhere in there, and I'll tell you what's going to happen. And then he sees a chariot. Hey, Philip, I want you to run like an idiot across the desert and go chase after that chariot. God's kids is telling him what to do. And then what's happening? You see the timing? It just how happens at that moment. He's reading Isaiah 52 and 53. It just so happens. It just so happens. Isn't that this, for some of you, that's your story. You just so happened to come back to your dorm when that person came up to your room. It just so happened that you were eating in that restaurant when that person sat down with you. It just so happened that you were working in that place. It just so happened that your mom and dad wanted to get you out of the house, and so they kicked you out to that VBS in July at some point. It just so happened. Acts is about what? All that Jesus began to do, this is the work of God. God goes after real people, people who are outliers, people who are outsiders, who are broken, and he wants them brought in. And he will do whatever it takes to orchestrate it in order to bring you into his house, the pursuit of God for you. You understand that God's after you? This is a great story from a a missionary who's in our denomination, uh, works with what's called Mission to the World, and she is... um, her name's Emily Witten. She went to Cambodia, and primarily what she work, does is she works with women who are coming out of the, being sexually, sexually trafficked. And in an update, a, a number of, about a year or so back, there was a video where she was teaching English, talking about how she was teaching English to these women to help them to, been, to, to integrate back into society, to help them learn a, a language so that they can be, get jobs. And the way that she, one of the main ways they were teaching English was they were doing it through song. And the first song that she taught them was what? Jesus loves me. And she sent back an audio of the message of these women in their Cambodian accents, these women who've come out of sexually being sexually trafficked for much of their lives. And they sang, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know why. 
because God's word tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know. If you feel unclean this morning, Jesus tells you, I'm coming after you. And there's nothing that can stop me to make you mine. Jesus loves you so much that he pursued you into death itself. The Bible tells us so. Jesus loves you so much that he took on your shame of that sexual abuse that was performed on you or done by you. The Bible tells us so. Jesus loves you so much that he became an outsider so that you could become an insider. This is not moving because it's a nice sympathetic idea. It's moving because it's true. Because Jesus proved it through the cross. And to you who are insiders, that's the application to you outsiders. Would you come? Would you come and cry out to Jesus, the one who has made you clean? To you insiders, though, to you, to you this morning who remember when you were outsiders, who've experienced the joy of being brought in, my call to you this morning is to go back to our first point. Would you become those who go back out to the outsiders? God did not call you into the family of God for us to all have a great time together and to bask in how cute we are. No, God calls us into the family of God to send us out to draw others into God's family. See, what happens to the eunuch? The the tale in church history is this. It's in the second century by one of the early church fathers by naming Irenaeus. And the history is this, is that the, the eunuch went back and began the church in Ethiopia. The first missionary to Africa had led many to the, war, to the Lord. What do outsiders who become insiders do, who truly understand that they have been made right with God, who have been cleaned? They go back out to bring others in. Do you see the joyous hope, the joyous gospel that is not a, that we don't have to be embarrassed of? It is to be the joy of our life to go tell people about this Jesus. Hope you take up that task. Let's pray. Lord, wherever we go, wherever, you, wherever we go, Lord, we take the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, gracious God, I, I pray, I'm going to be quiet in just a second. I'm going to lead and pray and ask that, Lord, you would give me boldness and give me opportunities to share my faith. I'm going to silently pray for the one person who's been on my list. And we'll let these folks do that as well. So, gracious Heavenly Father, I boldly pray the dangerous prayer that you would give me opportunities to share my faith. God, empower us not by guilt, not by a sense of our lack, but empower us by the fact that we were once outsiders and have been made clean and been brought into the family of God. Lord, drive home that gospel truth as the motivating force that drives us out to those who are hurting. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.